The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Please follow as I read from God's Holy Word, the Gospel of Luke. Our studies have brought us to chapter 20. Jesus is in Jerusalem for that critical last week, those last days of his life. We will not, of course, cover every detail or every passage that takes him to the cross, but we will in these next weeks be looking at events of that last week. Today, Luke 20, I'll read verses 9 through 19, what is commonly called the parable of the wicked tenants. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable, a man planted a vineyard and went into another country for a long time. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent a third, this one also, they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But Jesus looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. This is God's word. There's been a minor discussion among historians for more than a century now since the Civil War over the extensiveness of the plot to assassinate Abraham Lincoln. I'm sure you know that John Wilkes Booth, the primary assassin, was killed in the process of being captured, shot in a barn. A handful of other conspirators were hung not long after that crime, most of them apparently guilty. One, perhaps, Mary Surratt, not guilty. History asks those questions. And historians ask... Is it possible the plot was even wider? I've read things that have even implied perhaps things going into the cabinet or the higher reaches of government behind that plot. No one will ever know. We do know that there was a scheme, a plot, a conspiracy 
which caught Jesus Christ up in its scheming, its wiles, and put him on a cross. And it was not a plot simply put together by a few priests who were unhappy with him. It was, in fact, the Bible says, something that was cosmic in its extent. The powers of hell were arrayed against the powers of heaven in that conspiracy. And there were many people involved. The cross, we know, was a collision between cosmic forces catching up the Son of God and taking him to the destiny that God himself had designed he would go to. The interesting thing to think about today is that it was actually God that was being arraigned, but it was the Son of God who was struck down. Luke chapter 20 has this parable we call the parable of the wicked tenants. It's one that a child probably doesn't have a hard time getting some meaning out of it. There's nothing too obscure here. Who is being talked about can easily be figured out from where Jesus was and who was listening. Certainly we see equivalencies in the persons in the parable. The landowner who owned this vineyard was certainly God. The tenants who were to work the vineyard and bring some fruit or result from it were the nation of Israel as a whole. Those who went to them and spoke to them a message of accountability were the prophets. And there's no question, of course, that the son who came last of all was Jesus himself. At minimum, I think this parable asks us to do several things. And here are the points I want to bring to you today. To marvel at God's long-suffering love. To recoil from humanity's plot, which really was to kill God. And thirdly, to either embrace Christ or be crushed by him. First of all, here's a text causing us to marvel at God's long-suffering love. I don't know much about vineyards or raising grapes, but the little that I've read is, I, I can imagine that you don't plant grapes and vines don't grow immediately and, you know, in four or five months or something, you have a crop. It takes a long time to develop and cultivate those vines and get a crop. So we hear this parable that a man planted a vineyard and then let it out to tenants. It had to be tended, cultivated, pruned, and probably a few years before a crop would be expected. And so he sent his messengers finally to say, well, there's some rent due. There's an expectation that the owner is going to share in the proceeds of the crop. This came alive to me in, a, in an incident in our family. My younger sister and her husband live in Chester County, and they moved to a different home without selling the home that they had lived in for a number of years. Also, they have rental property, so they're, they're used to the idea of tenants and how to deal with them and leases and all of that. And they finally saw that their house that they'd moved out of wasn't selling on this slow market, and they thought, well, let's rent it for a while. We'll let it be dormant and not for sale for the moment. And actually, they found a tenant who said, well, maybe I'll buy it, but let me live there for six months first. So these folks moved in, and then one day, the next-door neighbor called and said, say, did you know there's a moving van? They're moving out. 
And my sister and her husband didn't know that. And sure enough, the folks were gone. The house was vacated. Walls were broken. All the custom draperies were removed and the curtain rods and everything. A major appliance was gone. Guess what? The tenant called and said, now, you understand, I want my damage deposit back right away. When actually he owed more than the damage deposit would have paid for. To me, those folks were exactly like these vineyard tenders. Tenants who owed something to a landlord who acted in an atrocious manner and seemed to think that everything belonged to them and they had no responsibility to anyone else. Now, one thing to know that would help you is that Jesus probably told this parable. He was spending this week teaching primarily in the temple courts. And there was a layer of understanding that his audience had that maybe you don't have when he was talking about a vineyard. A lot of double meaning here. Because in that temple, as he spoke, was a a gateway that went from the outer court into the holier place. And it was a big gateway that had a sculpted vineyard or vine, a grapevine, on this great big arch, all overlaid in gold leaf. And everybody there knew what that meant because the, the vine of fruitful grapes was a well-known Old Testament symbol for Israel, for the nation. And in fact, you would find that if you would look in a particularly famous passage of Isaiah chapter 5, where the Lord speaks through Isaiah and talks about the fact that this nation was a vineyard that God had planted to bring fruit. Isaiah 5.4 says, What more could I do for my vineyard than I have already done? It talks about how he had built a fence around it and a watchtower and cultivated the ground and did everything you would expect to have a wonderful return from your crop. And it was talking about Israel. Everybody knew that. The vineyard, the vine, was Israel. Romans chapter 9 verse 4 has a passage that picks up that theme and talks about Israel's many spiritual advantages. It says... Theirs were the covenants, the law, the divine glory, the temple, the patriarchs, the human ancestry of Christ, kind of piling it on, saying, look at all the things that Israel had going for them. And an expectation was there that they would somehow bear fruit. But you know probably that the verdict by this time in the development of the Bible and certainly what Jesus was saying himself was, where's the fruit? Where's the repentance? Where's the faith? Where's the obedience to the word of God? Where's the expectation of God's Messiah? Where's the eager worship of God's people? It wasn't there. And one of the things that Luke 20 certainly emphasizes that we shouldn't miss is the way in which God extends himself way beyond any reasonable expectation in his patience and his mercy towards people who have his truth before he says, where's the fruit? When no answer comes back from the first messenger you see here, he sends another messenger and he sends another and another, appealing again and again, both corporately and individually. Martin Luther, temperamentally, was a man much more like me, certainly more like me than he was like God, I think, in his temperament. And Luther wrote about this passage once, commented in his writings on this passage, and he said very bluntly, if I were God, 
And the world treated me as it regularly treats him. I would smash the planet to pieces. See, Martin Luther wasn't exactly a gentle theologian. (laughs) He said, look at how people treat God. And yet he's long-suffering. In fact, there's a word that the Bible actually invented for God. He suffers long with people who try his patience. Second Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is long-suffering to us, not willing that anyone should perish. Not too many of us are generally characterized by being long-suffering, are we? If you have an employee at work, you're a manager perhaps or an owner of a business, and this employee kind of comes and goes as they please, doesn't really observe regular hours, always has excuses for being late or sick or taking extra days off, and, and on top of that does very poor work. How long are you going to be long-suffering? Probably not too long. It's true in marriages, isn't it? We take sacred vows today to pledge ourselves to a husband or a wife till death do us part. Once, you know, people were held by those vows, they really meant something. Even when it got tough, people said, you know, it's not easy in this marriage, but I'm going to hang in there because I took a vow. Now, many times, what do we say? I can't take this anymore. Do you know what this person does to me all the time? I can't take it. I'm out of here. God shows us in this text that he is the very epitome of what it means to be long-suffering. There are people who would say, what do you mean? What has God done for me lately? Well, if you live in America, I'll start to list some things. He's put you in the freest, materialistically, most abundant land in the history of the planet. You say, well, yes, but I'm not one of those rich guys. Well, you do live with freedoms that people around the world are jealous of. I've been checking, and you know, you don't have to be a genius to see that uh, there really isn't any crowd busting down the borders of this country to get out. Is there? It's getting in that's the issue. There are lots of people that want to live where you live. Consider the issue of your conversion to faith in Christ, God's goodness and long-suffering. How long did he have to appeal to you? You say, oh, I came to him as a child. I'm sure there are many who would say that. But some of you came to Christ as adults. And some of you were even a tough case. And you look back and say, look how God worked, how he wooed me, how he appealed to me, how he didn't give up on me. And, And other Christians and people prayed for me and witnessed to me and taught me. God was good in bringing me to himself. And yet, isn't it true that when any kind of calamity or severe illness or stroke of grief or something comes along, we tend right away to say, oh, why is this happening to me? Why is, it, why is God doing this bad thing? When maybe we ought to say, how in the world was I spared so long when there's so much suffering, when there's so much pain in the world? God is still good. I can still thank him even in the midst of a hard stroke. Do you think it's strange that a long-suffering God should expect spiritual fruit from those he is born with and blessed and treated kindly? 
you need to look at yourself and say, is he seeing any in my life? Now secondly, in a shorter point, I want you to come to the heart of this in verses 13 and 14. I would say here, what I want you to see is, is a shudder, perhaps, in your being at humanity's plot to murder God. That's what Jesus was telling the parable about, a plot by humanity to take God off his throne and destroy him. Scripture gives us an interesting summary in Second Chronicles 36. I would imagine not many of you have been browsing around in Second Chronicles just lately, so you might even want to mark this text down. It's a beautiful capsule summary of what the Lord was doing in the Old Testament days. Here's what it says, starting at verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. What did God do first? He was kind. He was long-suffering. He was merciful. He spoke the same thing again and again, and he waited and he waited. But there came a time when his accounting came hard for Israel. Hebrews 11.36 describes the fate of many prophets in past days when it says they faced jeers and flogging. They were chained, imprisoned, and stoned, sawed in two. That was Isaiah, by the way. That's how he died. They were put to the sword destitute, persecuted, mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. And all that time, God was waiting. The point of this parable is not for us to look in some kind of revulsion at these people and say, how could people be as bad as these folks were? For this actually is not just some isolated group. This is mankind. This is humanity. We sang in John Newton's hymn here, A few minutes ago, could we bear from one another what he, God, daily bears from us? Did you ever think about that? Yet this glorious friend and brother, Christ, loves us though we treat him thus. This is us. This is humanity in a plot to throw off the government of God, which began way back in the Garden of Eden. A plot to say, God, we won't have you rule over us. We'll try to be polite in your presence, but we really don't want what you represent. We want to be independent. We want your throne for ourselves. And so comes this word from the landlord, the owner, in the parable. Verse 13, when the landlord said, what will I do? Uh, This isn't working. I will send my son. Perhaps they will respect him. Every commentator who writes on this passage says, watch it, because here's a place where you could easily misinterpret. God is not a man. He does not have the behavioral characteristics of a man, and God is not to be compared necessarily to the reasoning of this landlord. If we did compare that directly, what would we think? We might draw the conclusion that the cross of Jesus Christ was some last-minute devised measure. No appeal is working. A drastic situation calls for a drastic solution. I'm not sure if this will work or not, 
but I'll take the most important person I have under my command and I'll send him and maybe this will work. Just maybe. That is not the mind of God. The cross was not a stopgap devised by God as some emergency procedure that might work. In fact, we are told that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain from before the foundation of the world by the direct foreknowledge and plan of his Father. Romans 8.32 says God did not spare his Son, but gave him up for us all. He sent him knowing that he'd be killed. He wasn't the equal, the exact copy in his thinking of this landlord here. I remembered an incident, and I wanted to check it out. It seemed to me like it was only a few years ago, and when I checked it out on the Internet, I find out it was 12 years ago. Time flies when you're having fun. You might remember in the sports world, it's spring, and some of us baseball fans want you to know that baseball starts soon. So I remember this incident where a major professional baseball player was very irate over a call in baseball, and he spit in the umpire's face. And the sports world just went wild. The talk shows were all talking about it. Everybody was calling for the guy to get a huge fine, and everybody professed to be greatly shocked that somebody would spit in the face of an umpire. Well, folks have been spitting in God's face for generations and centuries. And we all do it. We all want to throw off this government of God and somehow think that maybe we'll have squatters' rights on his blessings and we can have the blessings but not have God the governor. Romans 8, 7 says the carnal, the fleshly carnal mind is at enmity with God. That's one of those great Bible words that We don't use in everyday conversation. The fleshly, unredeemed mind, unoccupied by the influence of the Holy Spirit, is God's enemy. And that's where we all started. We all started out, somehow or other, in a plot to throw off God. Preaching of the gospel tells us that one of the first things that happens, one of the first marks that the Holy Spirit has begun to move upon us and change us is that we begin to recognize this. That we begin to take ownership of our place in this plot. We get a right estimate of how our sin nature opposes God and we own up to it. Unlike these tenants, we don't behave foolishly and think we can just push God away forever, but we acknowledge Yes, I'm involved in the conspiracy, God. John Newton once said, we will never fully understand God's grace nor enjoy the comforts of his gospel until we have a heartfelt conviction of our own wretched condition as sinners. We've got to see that we're involved in the plot, enrolled in the plot to throw off God. That's where a turn and a change begins by the Holy Spirit of God. Third and finally this morning, our text has the instruction of Jesus to do this, either to embrace Christ or be crushed by him. Jesus was, this was a really confrontational parable. He was right there in the temple precincts. 
The people he was telling this about who were in the forefront of the plot were there in front of him. They knew he was talking about them, and he knew they knew he was talking about them. This was confrontation of the first order. And they, as you see, were ready to arrest him if they could have, but they were afraid of the people. But what did he say? He quoted something from Psalm 118 that we read in the call to worship this morning that pictured God's ultimate messenger as the cornerstone of a great building. We have a cornerstone in this church. It's right straight out there. If you've never noticed it, it has the date on it where the church was built. It's a completely non-functional piece of this building. You could take it out and nothing would happen. Cornerstones in those days were not decoration. They were usually a great, square, well-aligned stone that was put down and it would be put in a precise place and then a transit would be used and the walls that came off of that corner would be aligned by that block. So that block was integral to the whole structure. Jesus was saying, here I am. I am the cornerstone predicted by Psalm 118. I am the ultimate messenger of God. Build upon me, be founded upon me, or you will trip over me, or perhaps I will fall upon you and crush you. There's no neutrality where Christ is concerned. None at all. Everyone who hears of him either reacts in responsive faith or turns in more teeth-grinding animosity away from him. He was the final messenger. Yes, he was killed when he came, but his message and his errand were effectual. He accomplished exactly what God designed him to accomplish. Because when God said, I will send my son, it was really the same thing as saying, I'll go myself. And when the heir comes, we know that God is ready to call for an accounting. The heir, Jesus Christ, is the one who's going to be the judge, you know, in the final day. Scripture teaches us in other places it's Christ who will face as final judge, not the Father. Judgment is given into the hands of the Son. But let me remind you of this, lest we end on a totally grim note here. God is still the long-suffering God. He's brought you to this hour today, patient with you in opportunity after opportunity, after opportunity, so that you might hear, and you might turn, and you might humble yourself and say, yes, oh God, I was part of that plot to do away with you, turn you out, murder you if I could, but now I want to bow before you, and I want to bow before this son and embrace him, lest he fall on me like a ton of bricks. God is long-suffering to you right up to this moment. But he speaks the words of Psalm 2, and I make the appeal of that psalm in his words. Kiss the son. Kiss him. Lest you be destroyed in your way. For blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, I thank you that Jesus was blunt I thank you that he was, there was a time to be confrontational. But how I thank you above all that you are the long-suffering, merciful God. You don't blot us out the first time we reject your word. 
You don't cast us off as Christians the first time we badly mess up and fall on our faces. You take us back, and you take us back, and you take us back. Thank you for that long-suffering mercy. I pray if there's someone in the sound of my voice who's never embraced or kissed the Son, they would do so now before the weight of his condemnation would fall upon them and the time for mercy would end. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.